Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that, those words just leapt out at me as I read them this week. For the word of God is alive and active. It is meant to change us, to shape us, to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. And sometimes it's going to be like a double-edged sword, piercing. It's going to hurt. It's going to penetrate. It's going to touch areas which we find difficult or which challenge us or, or, or cause us pain. But it's for God's purposes and it's for our good. The Word of God is alive and active for our good. If we want to know God's will, if we want to know God's best for us, if we want to know God's blessing in our lives, then we have to take his word seriously. And we need to allow God's word to be alive and active in us. In other words, taking God's word seriously does not mean spending hours and hours studying academic books, commentaries and all of that sort of stuff. That's not what I mean by taking God's word seriously. What I mean is allowing it to touch us. Allowing it to have an impact. Recognizing it for what it is. God's word, alive and active. And, and what is this controversial, challenging passage that can be so powerful but so painful? Well, it's the Lord's Prayer. And specifically, verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And for some of us, praying in the way that Jesus taught us is one of the most difficult things. Because for some of us, confronted or being confronted by our sin, <clears throat> by our wrong, by the, the way that we are, is a very difficult thing for us to cope with. And for some of us, forgiving others is the hardest, most painful thing we could ever be asked to do. But I want to ask us, as we, as we look at these verses, this verse and consider it, I want to ask us to allow God's word to be active and alive within us. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read from Matthew 6 just to give us the context. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 5. Jesus talking to the disciples. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray 
standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done <clears throat> on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let's just pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us from your word. Pray, Lord, that your word would be alive to us this morning. And I pray that your word would be active in us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Both St. Augustine and Martin Luther said there is nothing more wonderful in the entire Bible than the Lord's Prayer. And, um, and you can't have much better uh, authentication than that. And I think we all know that prayer is vital for the Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was one of the key Bible preachers and teachers in, in, in this country in the last century, he said this, prayer is beyond question the highest activity of the human soul. Mankind is at his highest and greatest when on their knees they come face to face with God. Prayer is the ultimate test of a person's, and in brackets I'm saying this now, I would say a church's true spiritual condition. Prayer is the ultimate test of a person's true spiritual condition condition. And he also said this, the more saintly a person is, the more they spend time alone in conversation with God. So where are you on the scale of saintliness? You can score yourself, I'm not going to ask. The more saintly a person is, the more they spend time alone in conversation with God. I know uh, sorry, I can't resist the temptation to do this. I hate it when preachers do this. They, they choose something, some ridiculous example of a saintly person and then compare you with them and you feel like a worm. But um, John Wesley didn't think much of anybody who prayed for less than four hours a day. 
So I'm a worm, okay. Martin Lloyd-Jones also said this. And all of this, by the way, all of this comes from his um, book of studies on, on, on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a brilliant book to have on your, on your, on your shelf. Martin Lloyd-Jones, greatest preacher and teacher in this country in the 20th century, said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. That's a shocking statement, isn't it? Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. So if you're <coughs> not like John Wesley, <coughs> and you're more like me, in a way that's kind of slightly encouraging, I think, because praying is something that generally we find difficult. And in Luke's Gospel... So the sort of parallel passage about the Lord's Prayer, he tells us that it was after Jesus had been praying in a certain place and his disciples came up and asked him to teach them to pray. And that is the context of that passage that I just read. And most evangelical um, Bible teachers, they seem to be, you know, of the opinion that what, what Jesus is giving his disciples is, is a model it's a pattern for prayer that um, <clears throat> it wasn't meant to be something that they learnt by rote and repeated uh, sort of automatically. Um, because Jesus, along with the disciples, they were brought up good Jewish boys um, and they would, have, they would have been used to ritual prayers said three times a day at sunrise, three o'clock in the afternoon and sunset in the evening, and they also would have had set prayers to say at meal times. And we see a, we see a kind of a hint of that in the Gospels. <clears throat> but we don't have an awful lot of Jesus' prayers recorded in the Bible. Um, you know, there are, there are some key prayers at, at, at specific times, like Jesus. On, in the Garden of Gethsemane, my, my Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Um, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Um, the longest prayer of Jesus is that we have is in, recorded in John chapter 17, so-called high priestly prayer. <clears throat> But the disciples were aware that Jesus would often get up early in the morning and go off on his own to pray. And sometimes he would spend whole nights in prayer. And, and they were obviously intrigued. What does he do when he goes and spends a whole night out on the mountain? When he gets up in the dark and goes off to talk to God, what, what does he do? What does he say? And so they say, Lord Teach us to pray like you do. We want to know what it's like. And in response, Jesus gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer, which we've just read, and which we are looking at in this little series. And in the original Greek of Matthew's Gospel, it's just 57 words. The bit that we add on at the end, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever, amen. That, that wasn't part of... Uh, 
the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's Gospel. That's something that the early church added on. But I believe, as I said, that what Jesus is doing, he's, he's given his disciples a pattern for how to pray. And many people believe that instead of being called the Lord's Prayer, it really should be called the, the Disciples' Prayer or the Believers' Prayer because um, Jesus clearly had no need to pray for forgiveness. But, he's, but the disciples didn't. He's teaching them, this is how you should pray. And, and in, the, in this Lord's Prayer that we're looking at, there are three petitions to do with God and his glory, followed by three petitions to do with us and our needs. And it's a helpful reminder when we come to pray that we shouldn't just rush into God with a shopping list. Lord, I need this. Lord, I need that. Lord, do this for me. It's important when we pray, we remember the context of who we are praying to. We need to prioritize God and his will and his kingdom before we come to talk to him about our needs. We need to be aligning ourselves with his will, not aligning him with our will. We need to remember that God is holy almighty, that he is the king of the universe. But we need to hold that intention with the fact that Jesus taught us to pray, Abba, our Father, our Dad. It was radical and shocking when Jesus began to teach his disciples to pray to God as Dad. But that's important. When we come to pray, that's important that we remember that. We're not coming to some distant God who is some potentate not concerned for us. No, we're coming to a, a loving Heavenly Father who has our best interests at heart, who wants the best for us. And so looking at this verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we clearly have to link that with verse, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So it's clear, I think, that when Jesus is talking about asking God to forgive us our debts, he's really talking about our sins. Some of you, when you learned this prayer as children, may have been taught to pray about forgiving our trespasses and those who trespass against us. I remember learning that as a, as a kid in infant school and I had no idea what a trespass was. And I'm not sure that anybody ever told me either. Sometimes we, we use the word transgression. Um, but what we're talking about is sins, wrongs, things that we have committed that are wrong against God or against other people. Or things that have been committed by others against us. And the first thing 
that I want us to recognize is the importance of confession. As you well know, in other churches, confession has a lot higher kind of status, uh, a lot higher profile than it does in our church. Uh, But I want us to bear in mind that this is in the context now of personal prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door. This is just between you and God, who is unseen. This is not about confessing our sins to one another, although there is a place for that in the Christian life, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about confessing our sins to Father God. And confession, of course, is linked to this idea of repentance. So we don't just list our sins. We, we are to say sorry to, for them. We are to positively turn away from them with a commitment to do right and not to do wrong. My mum used to say to me, sorry means I won't do it again. And that's all implicit in that phrase, forgive us our debts. And confession and repentance, of course, is the doorway into the Christian faith. It says we come to God in repentance and recognize Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf, which we're going to celebrate in communion later. It says we do that recognize Jesus' death to deal with the problem of our sin, that we enter into this wonderful relationship with God through whom we, through which we can now call him Abba, Dad. That's the doorway into faith. There's no other way in but that. And remember Peter, Peter speaking on the, the day of Pentecost, stood up in Jerusalem, explained who Jesus was and the fact that the Jews had put him to death, crucified him. And they said to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And that has been the message of the church ever since. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And there, there is, uh, you know, there is a sense in which that is a one-off thing. Um, we, we, we come to God by uh, saying, admitting our wrong, admitting our sin, receiving His forgiveness, and that's a one-off thing. When we do that, we become God's children. We get adopted as, into His family. We become part of His kingdom when we make that first decision to say sorry and accept Jesus as Lord of our lives. And it's that once and for all repentance and turning to God which baptism is such an eloquent symbol of. It's what the Bible calls justification, being put right with God once and for all, being declared not guilty, not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of the sacrificial death of Jesus, the sinless Son of God, on our behalf. But in this model prayer, 
which Jesus is teaching his disciples, he shows us there is also a need for continually acknowledging our sin and confessing it to, to Father God. Even though we've been declared justified, righteous in a legal sense, we know that sin still has a powerful influence on our lives. It still tarnishes us. It still spoils us. It still makes us less than what God intends for us to be. And the clear intention of Jesus' teaching the disciples to pray this way is that we should be continually acknowledging our sin and confessing it and asking for God's help to change with the help of the Holy Spirit, which he gives us. And this process of confession and repentance, this ongoing desire to, to live clean, to live lives which please God, to live lives in step with the Holy Spirit, that is what the Bible calls sanctification. When we come before God in prayer, we should be regularly spending time in confession and repentance. 1 John uh, 1, he says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. It's a bit like when Jesus, do you remember um, at the Last Supper, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and as he goes to do it, um, Peter at first refuses. No, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. But Jesus turns around and says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter, being Peter, says, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. You know, don't just wash my feet, give me an all over. And Jesus replies this, which is, is a little bit strange perhaps. Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. In other words, when we've come in repentance and faith to God, we have been declared righteous. We have been justified. We've been put right with God. But we also, that's the bath. That's what, that's what baptism is a symbol of. But even though we've had a bath, we still need to regularly keep our feet clean. We still need to be Regularly coming to God, confessing, asking for his help to live clean, live well, live lives that please him. And if we're serious about a commitment to want to live lives that please God, then confession has to be part of our regular personal private prayer times. For our everyday lives, this process of 
regular personal private confession, I believe is the way that we should deal with our sin. But there may be occasions when the sin is a bit more serious than that. It may be a habit which no matter how hard we try, we can't get rid of. Maybe something that has gripped us. Maybe that we actually need the help of others to help us find forgiveness and healing and wholeness. And, and if that applies to you, then can I, can I say, please, please come and speak to Phil or, or Matt or me, and we will either meet with you and pray with you or we'll find somebody who can help you. But what I do want to say is do not allow serious, persistent sin to go unconfessed and unchecked because it will do you serious harm. And I know that from personal experience. So much for the first half of verse 12. What about the second half? And forgive us our debts even as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is instructing us that when we pray regularly, in private, we should be consciously forgiving those who we feel have sinned against us. And this is such an important point that Jesus follows it up. The only bit of the the Lord's Prayer that he follows up in verses 14 and 15 For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Excuse me? Excuse me, Jesus? Do you really mean that? Has Matthew got it wrong? Unless I forgive others for the wrong they have done to me, God won't forgive me for the wrongs I have done against him. Is that what you mean, Jesus? I believe that is what he means. And this is so important. The parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 surely teaches us this same principle. Ian preached about it um, not that long ago. You remember? The servant owed the king tens of uh, 10,000 bags of gold, an enormous debt that he had absolutely no hope of ever being able to repay. Even though he asked for patience and time to repay it, it, he could never do it. And the servant's master took pity on him and he cancelled the debt and he let him go. And and the first thing he does, the servant goes out and he finds a a fellow servant who owes him a hundred silver coins, a tiny debt in comparison with what he has been let off. And he, he grabs this other guy, demands to be paid back immediately. When the, when the other guy asks for time to repay, he refuses and has him thrown into prison until he can repay him. 
and the other servants who were standing by, they were incensed by this, by this injustice. And they tell the king, who calls the, the other servant back in, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him, o- handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus says this. This is the words of Jesus, right? This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. The word of God is alive and active. It's shocking, isn't it? And it's entirely consistent with verse 14 and 15 in Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. If we have known and received God's forgiveness, we cannot harbor unforgiveness against others. And I know that some will find this very difficult to accept. My heart is pounding even as I'm saying this. Because I know that there are people who harbor unforgiveness. And I I don't want to trivialize the hurts that people have borne. But the command of Jesus is very clear. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. And again, that, that's this is where that, I believe a word really God put on my heart, that Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this is where the surgeon's scalpel, the double-edged sword of the spirit, needs to be applied. This is where we may need to undergo pain in order to know healing and wholeness and freedom. Because unforgiveness is a trap. It's a prison. Joyce Mayer in her book, Do Yourself a Favour, Forgive, and actually the title says it all, but in her book she... uh, She says this, are you holding a grudge or is a grudge holding you? And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, and I'm going to read it out because I daren't say this myself. So this is not me talking. 
This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Gifted preacher and teacher of the last century. This is what he says. The proof that you and I are forgiven is that we forgive others. If we think that our sins are forgiven by God and we refuse to forgive somebody else, we are making a mistake. We have never been forgiven. The person who knows that they have been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is a person who must forgive others. They cannot help themselves. If we really know Christ as our saviour, our hearts are broken and cannot be hard, and we cannot refuse forgiveness. If you are refusing forgiveness to anybody, I suggest you have never been forgiven. I couldn't say that but Martin Lloyd-Jones can. And I believe that is entirely consistent with what Jesus says in Matthew 6 and Matthew 18. They're strong words. And I would say we ignore them at our peril. Ephesians 4, Paul says this, be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That's how we're being asked to forgive. When we pray in the way that Jesus taught us, we have to be prepared to forgive others for the wrongs they've done to us. And as before, on most occasions, we just do that in our room, with the door closed, on our own, between us and God. And, and no more is needed. We just recognize somebody has done that to me. It hurt me, Lord, and I forgive them. I'm going to release that. don't want to hold it against them. I want to forgive them and move on. That's all we need to do. But again, like before, there may be some occasions where actually the hurt is much deeper than that. And the pain is more serious than that. And the roots of unforgiveness are deeper and again, we may need help. And again, if that's you, uh, can I urge you to speak to Phil or Matt or myself and we will find somebody who can help you. As the Lord's Prayer shows us, we need to be people who take confession of sin and forgiveness of others seriously. We dare not allow this to be something that we just recite. That's the problem with reciting the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How many hundreds of times had I said that and I had no clue what it meant? We dare not just repeat something by rote and not let it touch our hearts. The word of God is alive and active. It has to be alive and active. The commands and warnings of Jesus are too important for us to treat it like that. 
let's be people for whom God's word is alive and active. Let's be obedient in order that we may know the abundant life that Jesus wants us to experience and know. Let's be people who pray as Jesus taught the disciples, not, not, not just to recite it, but prayerfully, thoughtfully, from the heart, Lord, Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray, shall we? The Word of God, it's alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, help us to allow your word to challenge us and change us. We want to open ourselves up, Lord, to these truths. We want to examine ourselves in the light of what you've said. We don't want to treat these things trivially. We want you to change us, Lord. We trust that when we put ourselves into your hands, we are putting ourselves into the safest place we could possibly be. Just, just thinking, in, you know, a bit of a picture about the trust that's involved. I've, I've never had... Uh, uh, an operation, but I can imagine that you know you're putting your hands, your life into the hands of a surgeon, trusting that he knows what he's doing, trusting that he can cut the bad bits out and leave the good bits, not harm you. I just want to reassure us that God is wiser, more knowledgeable, more careful than any surgeon. If we'll dare to put our trust in him in this way, if we'll dare to put our lives in his hands in this way, if we dare to confess our sins, he was faithful and just, will cleanse and purify you. If we dare to forgive others, God will heal the hurts and the scars. Lord Jesus, we believe in you. We trust you with our lives. Pray, Lord, that we will live this out. It won't be just something we hear and go away and forget, but we will allow your word to be alive and active in us. As we come to 
communion now, Lord, we just thank you for the forgiveness which it represents. Those 10,000 bags of gold that we could never repay. But you sent Jesus, spotless, sinless Son of God, to die in our place, taking our punishment that we could be set free. And Lord, we worship you. Help us to never forget the debt that you cancel for us. Help us to live in the light of your forgiveness and your mercy. Amen.